But first of all, uh, thank you so much to the organizers, uh, Heidi, uh, Maxine, and Tatiana, for putting together uh, this uh, uh, very uh, interesting uh, program. I am very much looking forward to the rest of the day and to hearing uh, more in particular about EU-Russia relations. So thank you for, for doing this. Um, three questions. Uh, I'll try to address all of them, uh, perhaps with an emphasis on the first two, and uh, I believe the question of will to <laughs> those who are inside the system, perhaps. Um, I'd gladly also, Maxine, uh, talk at length about European states that are not EU uh, members and uh, how that affects their foreign policy. As a Norwegian citizen, that's uh, something that uh, I do spend some time thinking about, but perhaps that's for a different uh, uh, venue. Um, so, uh, three questions. I realized when preparing this that I ended up actually reflecting on the questions and coming up with uh, new questions. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and in particular questions that perhaps are important for uh, us as researchers to, to address. So I don't, have more, uh, I don't have answers, I have more questions. Uh, first question, what are the most pressing challenges facing the EU and its foreign policy? Now, if we think in substantive terms of concrete issues or relations with specific countries, I think that the list is, is almost endless. Uh, relations with Ukraine, uh, Syria, the risk of a, a trade war with the US, uh, climate, um, Libya, uh, and the way the EU handles or doesn't handle uh, questions of migration. Uh, there's the whole package of uh, armament and disarmament, uh, INF start, uh, etc., which seems to be coming up at the agenda as well. Um, so uh, the list in substantive terms, I think, is quite, uh, quite long. Um, but I think it's not enough to flag all these uh, substantive issues one by one. If we are to make sense of the challenges facing EU foreign policy, I think uh, we need to reflect seriously on the context in which that foreign policy is going to uh, emerge and, and act. Uh, and I think uh, this, this also uh, uh, goes for the second question, whether the EU can do something uh, in 2019 that it couldn't do in 2009. Uh, we need to understand that context uh, in order to know whether the EU can actually uh, do something now that it couldn't do uh, previously. And that's really my, my main point here. Uh, that the main challenge, I think, for the <coughs> European Union is to get a grip on what actually character characterizes the current global context. So uh, we tend to talk about this global context often in terms of power and security. So there is increasing instability, there is increasing 
uh, unpredictability, and I don't disagree with any of that, but I think we need to throw an additional element explicitly into that discussion and to say that there is increased normative uncertainty in the global system and that this might be an important intake into understanding uh, what kind of world the EU should operate in. Uh, and by normative uncertainty, I mean that there is uncertainty about the rules of the game uh, and those rules that were taken for granted seem by many actors not to be taken for granted anymore. What does that mean for foreign policy? Uh, obviously, this is connected to the whole debate about the demise of the liberal order, but I think sometimes that debate uh, becomes, makes it too simple to say that it, it's about the decline or withdrawal of the U.S. and the power vacuum and the emergence of other powers that might fill that vacuum. I, I, perhaps we should think about this in, as something more complex, uh, where uh, we seem to be <coughs> observing a need to redraw the normative anatomy of world order. So um, <clears throat> the main challenge, I think, for the European Union in foreign policy has to do with understanding uh, the normative challenge to the, uh, the liberal world order um, and not only position itself uh, in a game for power, to understand how the EU can deal with the normative uh, challenge and to reconsider what can and what should be rescued within what we refer to as the liberal order and uh, what should be uh, reformed. So uh, <coughs> something that's also commonly uh, referred to is how to have a liberal foreign policy in a non-liberal world. Uh, perhaps that's also slightly too uh, simple because um, there may be inconsistencies within the liberal foreign policy, the way we have been thinking about it, that need to be uh, reconsidered. Uh, but first then, we need to understand better what are the specific normative challenges to the, to the uh, old order. So um, I completely disagree with the idea that we are facing a reversion to geopolitics, competition for power, etc and that this is the only thing going on. Of course, there is power in the world and there is competition for that power. But I think if we start uh, uh, arguing along the lines that this is a reversion to the Cold War, there we, we, we risk missing something. Because in parallel with that, there is mutual interdependence, there is interconnectedness, uh, there are issues and actors that travel across the borders of states in a way that means that uh, global relations cannot be handled uh, by single units uh, acting uh, on their own. 
So that's to the first point, uh, and I almost used up mm -hmm. my time. <laughs> so I definitely will not go into the question of will, but I can say a little bit about the second point, perhaps if you allow me, Heidi. And, and, and that, that's, that has to do with can the EU do something in 2019 that it couldn't do in 2009. Um, OK. On the one hand, one might answer uh, yes straight away uh, because uh, the EU's institutional uh, capacity has been enhanced with the development of the external action service, uh, a stronger, more active and more visible high representative, um, and uh, perhaps also a more assertive uh, commission. One might argue then uh, straight away that uh, the, this, this key concern uh, of, uh, you know, having uh, an actor that is uh, able to uh, take well-informed decisions and, and to execute uh, those decisions that the EU in foreign and security policy has moved uh, further uh, towards the ability to do so. In addition, there are developments within uh, um, uh, uh, security and military <coughs> capabilities with PESCO, etc., etc. So there seems also to be more capabilities and resources. So that should tell us that yes, the EU can uh, do uh, more uh, than what it could do uh, 10 years ago. But if we bring into uh, the bag uh, this idea of um, normative uncertainty, which is not only global, it's also local <coughs> and regional, uh, then maybe uh, the answer is, is, is slightly different in the sense that one thing is to be a credible actor based on resources. Uh, another thing is to be uh, considered a legitimate actor in the global system. And in order to get things done, uh, actors uh, probably need more than resources, they also need legitimacy. And this is one of the uh, lessons that I, I carry home from uh, uh, some of the research uh, visits that we have done in the Globus project, is that the current domestic situation in the European Union if I can refer to EU politics as domestic politics, <laughs> um, uh, makes the European Union quite vulnerable uh, to uh, critique in terms of uh, uh, its own commitment to the values that it tries to export uh, globally, democracy, rule of law, etc., uh, etc. Et so the whole <coughs> domestic or internal um, crisis or challenge to key <coughs> values that we observe with uh, 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 the rise of right-wing populism, uh, the inability to deal with the uh, uh, questions of uh, migration, etc., uh, etc., et um, seems to uh, reduce the ability of the European Union to be perceived as a credible actor that's, that promotes uh, liberal values in the, in the global 
system. So resources, uh, yes, there are more of those, but, but on the value uh, side, uh, uh, the EU has uh, more challenges, I think, now than it did in, in 2009. And this comes on top of the constant reminder from um, uh, the BRICS countries, or some of those at least, that we have been visiting, of uh, the European hegemonic past. And there, uh, few actors seem to make a distinction between the European Union as an actor and the member states of the European Union and their, the historic legacy uh, of, uh, their, um, um, of colonialism, etc., etc. So this is a challenge for the European Union to communicate uh, globally that the EU uh, conducts a different kind of uh, foreign policy uh, than, uh, than that of its, some of its uh, colonial, uh, pre-colonial uh, uh, <coughs> member states. Um, yes, uh, I used my time and I think I managed to say most of the things I wanted to say, so I will stop here and <laughs> pass the word to the others on the panel. Thank you. Thank you very much, Helene. I think a very good <coughs> kick-off for us to already start questioning some of the assumptions that we have. So this idea of, well, what is credibility in the international system and how does it change over time? But at the same time, also, I think I could remind it that, of course, nowadays we can't just say that's foreign policy, that's international relations, and that's what's happened at home. But actually, there's, of course, a very strong connection, and mm -hmm. that is that is, in the end, an important foreign policy perspective too. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, also very interesting, I think this idea that, well, if things change and we see that things are challenged, I think we all have a tendency to go back and look into our old toolbox that we had <laughs> 50 years and say, oh, maybe we are back there, but perhaps sometimes we should just throw out this toolbox and think of, do we need new tools to understand what's happening there? 